Hello, Uncertain Podcast. Welcome to 2022. Guess what? You made it. You survived 2021. I hope you're doing well and you are somewhat moderately healthy. It seems as if everyone is sick right now. I too am feeling under the weather a little bit. I actually don't know what that even means, under the weather. I'm going to Google that as soon as I'm done recording. Yes, so I have been battling a bit of a headache and body feeling generally run down. So I'm looking for ways to just find rest in the midst of the Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month campaign craziness. We are off to a great start, but I am trying to find some ways to be kind to my body. So I hope you are also creating some space, giving your body the rest that it is asking for, especially if you are participating in Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month. It is exciting to be able to participate in it with a bunch of other people, but it's still heavy stuff. So be taking care of yourself and take breaks when you need to delete your Instagram app if that is helpful for a few days just to get some rest and make sure you have some people you are able to process with. Speaking of Spiritual Abuse Awareness Month, all of our episodes in January are specifically going to address spiritual abuse. Our first episode is going to feature Laura Berenger the co-author of A Church Called Tove. You may have heard of this book. It's gone around a bit. We will discuss the book a little bit, but mostly we're just going to be discussing spiritual abuse in general and Laura's experience with that and what she has learned about it in the past few years as she was writing the book A Church Called Tove. I placed some links in the show notes that you might find helpful, so feel free to check that out. Thanks so much for being here. And now here is my interview with Laura Berenger. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. How are you? I am doing well. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Nice to meet you too. Thanks for doing this. Thank you for being a part of this conversation. I know this is something that means something to you. So excited to get to chat with you about this. I have a Facebook group that I'm on and I put in actually like an hour ago. <laughs> I was like, so are there any questions that you want me to ask about spiritual abuse as I'm doing these <laughs> podcast episodes? And, and there were three questions that got posted that wow. were like really good. I was like, oh, I'm glad I asked. So I will incorporate those into the conversation today. But just to start, I'd love to hear like what brought you to an awareness of spiritual abuse? When did you first hear that term and what has been your experience with it? Yeah. So I had no experience with spiritual abuse until the story broke about Willow Creek, which was my former church. I attended that church for 20 years, met my husband there, have many friends that still attend the church, have really have nothing against the church. But what happened was I can remember the moment like it was yesterday. It was March 23, 2018, and my husband and I were out to dinner, and I got a text message from my parents about a story breaking in the Chicago Tribune about Bill Hybels, who was my former pastor, and it said that there were allegations 
of a sexual nature against him. So kind of, to be honest, rolled my, we rolled our eyes at the time. Okay. Like got in the car, started driving home. And I started reading the article out loud to my husband and we recognized the names of the women. We knew almost all of them. Like they were, some of them we had known for 20 years. They were, some were family friends. Some my husband had known through work at Willow and it was incomprehensible to us that they would be making up a story. These were people that we knew. And it was this very disorienting like game of ping pong where these women that we knew would say one thing that they were like, there was some abusive behavior done to them at the hands of Bill Hybels, the pastor. And then the church would come out and say, oh, they're lying. They're just colluding to take down Bill before he retires. And it was back and forth, back and forth. And for me, I was like, naively, like I had, I had not experienced a church do what Willow Creek did. And my, my dad, who is a theologian was kind of walking me through the process. So we called him right away when we got home that night. And he said, this story is true. He said, I have seen it hundreds of times. It's a pattern. Hopefully Willow Creek will, will, step down and respond more compassionately. Well, they never did. So the question was, when did I become aware of spiritual abuse? It was when they started misusing scripture and they were using specifically what really got under my skin is they were misusing Matthew 18. They were saying, they were saying that the women should have gone privately to bill and spoken with him one-on-one But what they did instead was go to the media and they were implying, I'm, I'm not saying their words like perfectly, but that was, that was the implication. They were implying that because the women went public, they, they did not follow what the Bible says we should do. So this did not, I didn't have the language for it at the time, but that use of the Bible to, and again, I don't, I have the language now. I didn't have it then, but it was like using the Bible to silence when to silence the women was an attempt to silence the women didn't settle well in my soul. I, I um, was distraught about it. And so we would talk to my, my dad about it and he would explain to us, they're not even using Matthew 18 correctly. That verse should not be applied in this situation. And he said, which I still remember, like he would say, what? what abused woman or man should have to go sit one-on-one with their abuser, right? Like, no, that's just, it's unethical. It's reckless. It's not, it's morally incomprehensible. And then he would point us to the verses that they, that Willow Creek should be using instead. So my dad's a theologian. So at any rate, what I have come to understand now is that the twisting and misuse of scripture and misleading what really another thing that really bothered me is that so many people listening to what the leadership of Willow Creek said, because we should be able to, right. We should be able to listen to our pastors and elders. And we're conditioned and to, yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. That we respect them. And, but then I hear these words repeated back to me and I thought, oh my gosh, like not only are they using the Bible incorrectly, there are, there are numbers and numbers of people listening and believing and following. 
I can't, I couldn't, that, that was it for me. I was like, you can't do that. You can't take the Bible, the good news and twist it to silence the truth from coming out. And that was my first naive experience of spiritual abuse is seeing it being used to silence the truth against people who were coming forward with allegations Mm -hmm. and a very common way that the Bible is used to silence victims in these mm-hmm. cases and being called it's like this is like such a timely conversation because I literally got an email today with someone uh calling me a liar because I had posted a a very factual article on my website about the abusive pastor at the church that I left and they 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 literally called me a liar and they said you're a liar because the elders said that this pastor was exonerated and it was just like this idea of like they're telling the truth. So you're obviously lying. And it was just like, yeah. this whole, like, I was like, it happens. It's so common. It just, it happens. I know. So common. And I didn't at the time when the story was unfolding, I didn't know that this was common now that I've spent the last, let's see, since 2018 researching and reading about this. Now I understand that it's common, but I didn't know that at the time. And it was spiritual abuse, not only to silence victims of abuse. It was also spiritually abusive of the congregation Mm -hmm. to feed them a twisted narrative. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm glad that you said that because a lot of folks will say, well, it didn't happen to me. They didn't abuse me as, and it's this reality that like, if they are silencing victims and spinning a narrative, you are being spiritually abused. You may not you'll or be cognizant of, of the impact of it in a direct way, but they are spiritually abusing you just because they didn't sexually abuse you or, Correct. you know, co- directly come after you. It's still happening. Um, they're, it's, it, they're feeding you a narrative that coerces your behavior. Good one. Yes, yes. absolutely. <laughs> I guess I say that because like I said, I would have people whether it was directly across the table for me or on, I would get messages on Twitter or Facebook or emails about, you need to be quiet. You're hurting the church. The women should never have gone public. That's against what the Bible says we should do. And so I thought that's, that's the coercion where you've had a a person in authority tell you that the Bible's not being applied correctly. And then you follow it you've been abused. You've been spiritually abused because you have believed what the authority figure Mm -hmm. has led you to believe. Yeah. And it's a form of brainwashing. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, I really, I really appreciate that. You mentioned just that you came to an awareness of how common this is. And Mm -hmm. since you became aware of it, how common would you say that this is in evangelical churches? Well, okay. Sadly, since publishing this book, a church called Tove, we published it in a year ago, 2020. And I bet we have received letters. My dad and I have received letters every week since it's slowed down a little bit because we're a year out now. But what we have come to realize is that it is more prevalent than people realize. And it's sad. It's sad. We have heard some stories of sexual abuse, but over and over again, the stories that we typically get are about power abuse. Mm -hmm. They're about a spiritual, some sort of leader in authority, whether it's the pastor or, 
assistant pastor, executive pastor, somebody, or a board member, there's some type of asymmetrical power relationship. The person in power is an acknowledged, like a spiritual leader over the other person, an elder, what have you. And there's some act of power with words or something with power disturbs the less powerful person. We've, we've gotten stories about emotional power or psychological power, even just personal power. And it, it has become a pattern. And obviously there's lots of nuances to different stories, but I'm just astounded at how many examples of people that we have heard of from the last year that have examples of abuse from spiritual leaders. And you were unprepared for that. I was totally unprepared for that. Mm -hmm. I knew when I was, when we were writing the book, I knew it was too easy to find stories. So I thought, (laughs) oh my gosh, like I had a really hard time because my dad assigned me the job of finding like stories to go with all of our points. I had a hard time finding examples of churches that had done it right, mm-hmm. that had had an allegation and handle it wisely and lovingly towards the victims. I couldn't find many, mm. um, but what I found over and over again were examples of power abuse mm-hmm. or sexual abuse done by the leader. So I don't know, I don't have any statistics, but what I can tell you based on the stories that we've heard, the letters that we've gotten is that it's, it's all too common. And, you know, our publisher said my dad had a, we had a really good section in the book that my dad had written about the Catholic church and their abusive history. And our publisher took it out because he said, listen, evangelicals do not need any excuses to blame the Catholics or to push off onto them. Like they need to face reality in the evangelical churches. So probably a yeah, good call. That was a very long winded. That was a, but, probably, but yeah, probably a good call on the part of the publisher. Cause yeah, there's like anything you have to be so careful at how you yeah. say things and how you phrase things. And I have so many people that say, oh, like, you know, you wrote this book. I have a story and then they have a story too. So Mm -hmm. it's sad. It's too common, but I'm really thankful for the ministry you have and spiritual abuse awareness month. And Mm -hmm. there's, I have a lot of gratitude, even though it's a, it's a difficult topic. I have a lot of gratitude because we've heard from a lot of people who have said, thank you for giving me the language. I feel like I'm not crazy. Mm -hmm. I felt crazy. And now I know that I'm not. Mm -hmm. So yeah, despite the pain and despite the tough topic, people are talking and that flips the power dynamic. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause of that, and that is why the abusers in this Willow Creek church uh, wanted to shame the victims for going to the media because that does shift the power dynamic once Correct. they have a voice yeah. and they have a way to speak about what happened they do lose power and their narrative isn't the only narrative that exists out there Correct. um when yeah. you wrote the book what were your hopes and expectations for the book and then how has that changed and how is that different and is it different now that it's been out for a year You know, I did not know what to expect. This was not, I'm a, I'm a educator by 
trade. I That's what I went to school for. And that's how I've spent my career for 20 years is teaching primary age children. I'm not an author. I didn't really know what to expect. I knew we would get pushback because of the anger that I, I wrote about some of it in the book, the anger that I experienced from people that came at me thinking that we should be quiet and we were gossiping or whatever. Um, we were hurting the church. That was another big one. So that I expected. I did not expect to, I feel like I've, I've been in, I hold them sacredly, but the stories that we've received from survivors, it feels, it is a, it feels like a huge responsibility and a huge honor to be trusted with somebody's story and that is something I never imagined is that people would trust me with their, with their stories. You know, I I don't always have advice to give, but I'm, I just, I feel very honored that people think of me as a safe place. My hope has always been that the book would land in the hands of elders, that it would land in the hands of the people who are overseeing the pastor and can make the decisions and have influence. I've always felt from the beginning that what bothered me so much about Willow Creek and then all these other churches that I became aware of is that I felt and still feel so strongly that that's not what the church should be, that you are wounding people. And what's really scary to me is that maybe they don't want to come back to the faith because They've been wounded by a person who has tried to silence them or has abused them with power or abused them spiritually or abused them sexually when it's done by a a spiritual, a person of in spiritual authority, it's really hard to recover from that. And so I, that's not what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be a place of truth and grace and love and compassion. And so that is my hope that the message that we want to get that I've always wanted to get out is that you were hurt and you were wounded and it's not right. That is not what the church is supposed to be about. You may already know this, but the uncertain podcast is the affiliate podcast of tears of Eden, a nonprofit that serves as a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. This podcast and the work of tears of Eden are supported by donations from generous listeners like you. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider giving a donation by using the link in the show notes or visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. You can also support the podcast by rating and leaving a review and sharing on social media. If you're not already following us, please follow us on Facebook at Tears of Eden and Instagram at Uncertain Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. And now back to the show. How do you respond to people when they say you're tearing down the church by going public about these things? Yeah. I mean, well, okay. Now I try not to engage as much as I used to, because I don't, I I mean, I could spend, I could spend all day, like going back to vortex. It's like, right. It's like a swirling vortex, but I mean, I sat down face to face with people. Like I had it all, you know, had it out at Starbucks about Willow Creek and what I was saying about it. And I still go back to this. The, there are people that have been severely wounded. It hasn't been made right. God doesn't need me to be quiet. He can take care of the church. And really, I think, look at the examples in scripture. 
you know, people are called to speak up when they see that things have not been made right. Mm -hmm. And I felt, I felt called to do that. Now, did I do it perfectly? No, I'm sure I can think of many examples where I was too harsh or I spoke um, out of anger. Like I didn't do it perfectly, but what's in my heart and the message that I felt called to share remained the same. And God needed, I mean, God, i not needed me, but God used not just me, but a whole host of people, the women, their advocates to confront the truth because the church and ask the church to reveal the truth. Because if, if Willow Creek had it their way, I think the story would just have been buried and they would have moved on and nobody would have ever known the difference, but you have people look at the Bible. Jesus goes to the people that are wounded and there you've got people that are really hurt, really wounded by things that your pastor and your elders and your associate your executive pastor did to them. And it's not right. It hasn't been made right. Mm-hmm. And I think that there's a misunderstanding too, that if someone, you know, is abused in the church and then they leave like an institution of church, that somehow they're not a part of the church. And so to advocate for someone who is, has been abused by the church, you're still advocating for the church because they're still a part of the church just because they're not attending an institutional church or they've moved to a different institutional church. They're still a part of the church and they're not less you know, it's still part, you're still caring for the church. <laughs> like to, that's, that's a way better answer than anything. Just, I've ever you just care for the, have justice, you know, just to care right. for the people that's that it. have been wounded. I've, I always, I thought, I always felt like that argument doesn't make sense to me because God doesn't need us to worry about hurting the church. He'll take care of it. Mm-hmm. He will take care of it. Yeah. He doesn't need us to be the PR for it. Right. Yeah, no, that one, that one just gets me all the time. It's a, it's a main, it's a main, it's a pretty common one. Why do you think that? Yeah. 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 The ripple effects of sin are, I just, you know, there's, there's a pastor who sinned and there's people that propped up the system and then the system implodes and the ripple effects of the sin are so sad and so far reaching. And I know what they were saying. They were saying like, I work here and I care about this church and, you know, the attendance is waning and am I going to have a job? Like you're hurting us. I get it. You know, Mm -hmm. like it's, it's personal for them. And I know where they're coming. Like, I, I understand where they're coming from, but for me, it was always much bigger than that. It was always, it wasn't about attacking people personally. It was about calling the church to do the right thing because mm-hmm. it was the right thing to do. Right. And it is, it's caring for the church. It is. That's caring for the church. Right. <laughs> what would you say to someone who has had kind of similar to Willow Creek saying, oh, you should do Matthew 18. These are just personal conflicts. Like you shouldn't make them public. You're being overdramatic. If you call it abuse, like, what do you say to that response to someone saying it's spiritual abuse? Yeah, I, well, Matthew 18 is a big one. Another one is the verse in Timothy about how you need multiple witnesses before you can say something about an elder or whatever. And I guess, I guess what I would say is, are you asking from the victim's perspective or the church? Yeah. Like from a victim. Yeah. Yeah. 
Like, so we gaslight ourselves. Yeah, like, right. Like if somebody, like if somebody were to say that to you or to me, if that were, if that happened, if the abuse, not every perception of, you know, abuse is real. I shouldn't say it like that, but if a, if a person perceives spiritual abuse, somebody who understands it needs to probe and investigate, mm-hmm. especially if there has been a pattern of doing this and it's been observed by other people, another person, it deserves to be investigated. And so I would say that your concerns matter, that they're valid. And if you feel that Matthew 18 is being, or another Bible verse is being used to silence you, or are you being accused of gossip or you're being accused of not using the Bible correctly? I would say, know that you're not crazy, that it's a common, I understand now, I, I, again, when I went through it, I didn't know at the time, but it's a common method that churches use to silence victims and to silence the truth. So know that you're not alone. Know that sadly, it's a common narrative. It's a false narrative that people, that churches will use and spin if they don't want the truth to be known. Another one that the, I, I'm, it's escaping me right now, but the verse in Timothy, where they say you need like multiple witnesses before you like accuse an elder of something. We always say like, let's think about that for a minute. What? man is going to sexually abuse a woman in front of two or three other people. Never. It it happens in private. So, you know, ask yourself, like, who has the power dynamic when the, when the verse is applied? Mm -hmm. Is it the church? Absolutely. Right. So you really need to ask that too. I would get who benefits from this interpretation of the scripture. Right. Who benefits from this, Mm -hmm. right? Is it the church or is it the victim? Mm -hmm. And if the answer is the church, then, you know, I would look seriously at, is this a case of of spiritual abuse? It it deserves to be investigated. Oh, I think that's a really great thing for people to keep in mind when someone is being accused of gossip or being accused of not following Matthew 18 or disrespecting an elder asking that question, who is benefiting here? And what is the motivation of the people saying that? And if it's coming from an elder and their heart is actually care for the person, you know, that's one thing, but yeah, most of the time it's not. And right. And yeah, I want to say that most of the time it's not like, just because a person perceives spiritual abuse doesn't make it so, but because they perceive it, it deserves to be investigated. It deserves to be investigated by someone who understands spiritual abuse and can identify if there's coercion or control or manipulation or isolation. Those words describe, you know, spiritual abusive actions at times. So I guess. And someone, a, a therapist, I can't remember who it was, but a therapist had mentioned the way that we kind of view witnesses. Like we kind of we kind of think that they have to be a visual witness to the actual crime. But a therapist at one point suggested maybe a witness could be, so let's say like a teenage girl gets uh, sexually abused by a youth pastor. Well, her parents witness her post-traumatic stress afterwards, Mm -hmm. witness her declining grades around the time that it happened. Any 
signs of it, like they should still be considered witnesses because they're able to witness to the trauma that happened. And, and I, I mean, I can say that too, or just like, you know, maybe someone tells me a story of spiritual abuse and maybe I didn't see it happen, but I can tell that they're in distress. I can tell that there's pain. I can tell that something isn't right here and that shouldn't be discounted just because someone didn't visually witness this. I really like that. And, you know, when you've got in the case of Willow Creek and the case of other churches and stories we've heard of, of thinking of Bill Cosby, Kate, you know, there's a, there's so many out there when you've got multiple women accusing the same man, five to six at the will at the initial article that came out about Willow Creek, exactly. those are like multiple witnesses, you know, that's five witnesses. Yeah. Right <laughs> and if my dad were here, the theologian, which I am not, but he would tell you the case that Willow Creek should have been looking at and applying is in Deuteronomy where a woman and forgive me and for, I forgive all of list anybody listening. I know I'm butchering <laughs> the theology, the story, but just, just hear me out. I'm going to like say the overarching thing is, is theologically sound in Deuteronomy. There's a woman who has been essentially the text describes that she's been raped and by a man, she comes back, he comes back. And who is believed? The woman is believed. Mm. And that is the story that my dad says, we're not, we don't need to be playing Matthew 18. This is not a conflict. This is not an interpersonal conflict. This is an abuse of power. There's a power dynamic at play. And anyways, when that happens, let's go back in Deuteronomy and see what happened. The woman was believed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm, I'm sure of the story. <laughs> oh, it's, there's a whole, like there it's in the book and my dad blogged about it a few times. So okay. I'll, I can send it to you. Okay. Yeah. I want, uh, yeah, I want to know the story. Yeah. I have not finished the book yet. All right. I actually read the beginning and then I read the end. So I had context on the plane today. I want, I want that story. Cause I'm like, I'm going to, I'm going to use that. Yeah, that's, the one. That, that's why, that's why I felt called. I didn't want to be the one to write the book. I, again, I was not an author. My dad was the author and I was pushing him, but I said, dad, nobody else is saying anything like, right. We need a theologian. You're telling, you're telling me and my husband, Mark, these stories, like how the Bible should be interpreted. This is beautiful. This is God caring mm-hmm. about the wounded and believing the woman. And like, nobody knows about, like, you need to, you need to get the word out there. I kept, he would like, he told me that I was a pest, like I'll constantly telling him to write about it and pushing him. But good. that was part of it for me as I was like, People don't know this. They don't, they don't, the pe- average congregant sitting in the pew does at Willow Creek. We had theater seats. Doesn't know that Matthew 18 is being misapplied and they really should be reading the text in Deuteronomy. They don't know that. I wouldn't know that I'm a lay person. That's what we need. So that was part of my passion behind behind the project. Oh, yes. I am really grateful that it is in so many hands. What is your hope then for the book going out? You hope that it'll land in the hands of elders. And- I want it to land in the hands of elders and leaders who can in- make an influence to help form cultures of goodness, to resist toxic habits, toxic practices that 
promote power and abusive patterns and instead resist those and promote healing and goodness instead. So sort of building a foundation at the beginning so that we don't even get to that place where abuse happens. And I think that's really, yes. And it's also meant a lot to me that people who have been spiritually abused or hurt by a church have found solace in it. They didn't expect that, but I understand. And I'm so grateful because a lot of people have had these friends that folks that we've heard from have had an abusive experience in a church and they knew that they were like devastated. They needed therapy. It took years to recover, but they didn't know what to call it. They didn't know that it was Mm -hmm. wrong. They, they've tried healing, but haven't really. Yeah. So I want people who have been through something like that to know that it exists and the book exists and that there's, you're not alone and that there's a language for what you've gone through and that it's not right. Mm. Yeah. And honestly, that's like the same motivation behind and starting tears of Eden was just like, um, seeing this pattern and all of these, all of these things happening and no one, no one is, no one's talking about, like, no one's yeah. talking about it. Yeah. And, yeah. And there, I mean, I think there are more people doing stuff now, like working specifically in the realm of spiritual abuse, but I mean, I spent six months researching, asking questions, you know, do you know anyone doing this? Do you know anyone doing this? Do you know anyone doing this? And there wasn't anyone like directly speaking to that spiritual abuse aspect of it, that power dynamic aspect of it and misuse of scripture in these places. And, and going back to like what you said earlier about when they were misapplying, when they were trying to tell people, Hey, you need to use Matthew 18 or you need to not gossip. It was like churches just have no category for abuse. It's like, Mm -hmm. they just don't think that that could possibly happen within a church So then you have people who share their stories and no one believes them. No one listens. And just like on that note, if you, if someone were to say like, Hey, I have this story. I tried to tell my story. No one believed me. What would you say to them? Mm. That's so sad. I would say find community, find their, get therapy. If you're still at the church, don't, you know, if, if you, I realize that people need to heal a lot. They need to go through a survivor needs to go through like a process and feel pretty strong before they can come forward and be vocal and go public. So I don't think that's always the answer. I think every story is different. Some people are ready to speak. Some are not. Some people choose not to for, for, you know, very valid and, and good reasons. But I would say, like surround yourself with people who care and know that consider the power dynamic. And there, there may be a reason why maybe you are believed, but people don't want to admit it. That's another thing we found is that it's hard to, it's hard to believe the truth. It's really painful. It's really painful and there's no way around it, but we can, the human mind can, denial is very powerful and found that in a lot of like leaders of churches that they just didn't want to see, or they preferred not to know. And I guess that's a lot, another long-winded answer, but my point is like, maybe some people do believe they just aren't 
ready to see. Yeah. And gratefully there's more talk about it now and there's more resources now for folks to find um, other people who have gone through similar things. There is more language now and way, yeah, way more language in the past few years than there has been. Yes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for writing the book, the work that you did on it. Thank you for listening to survivors and for giving voice to a lot of experiences that many of us have had. So I really appreciate it. Yeah, it was an honor. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uncertain is the affiliate podcast of Tears of Eden, a community and resource for survivors of spiritual abuse. If you're enjoying this podcast, please consider making a donation by visiting tearsofeden.org slash support. All donations are tax deductible. Intro music featured in this episode is from the band Green Ashes. Before you go, please take a moment to like, subscribe, or leave a review, and don't forget to share this podcast show with everyone you know. I'm Katherine Spearing, and I'll see you next time.